This past week, uh, Tiffany and I went to visit a good friend who was diagnosed with late-stage cancer. And so now we pray. We pray for God's goodness and grace towards him and his family, and we pray for healing. But we always also struggle somewhat with where is God in the midst of this, in the midst of the pain that our friend is experiencing. And I think it's inevitable in the face of pain and suffering and all the events that we see in the world, when bad things happen to good people, that we also ask the question of the judgment of God. Where is God's judgment in the face of human sinfulness? How does it figure in these situations? Now, that's not the kind of question a wise preacher asks at the beginning of a short homily. Unless, of course, that homily is on Revelation when we are kind of forced to at least begin to talk about that. There aren't easy questions to judgment. We can't side with the Pat Robertsons of this world confidently labeling various events or natural disasters as the judgment of God. But neither is it very satisfying to side with the enlightened skeptics who erase any reference to judgment at all. The book of Revelation is full of potent images of the judgment of God, including the chapters that come right before what Shirley read for us. The trumpet plagues, they pile up one upon another in increasing intensity until at the sixth trumpet, one-third of humankind is killed. And still, those who survive do not repent or give up the worship of false idols. Chapter 10 breaks into the midst of the seven trumpet plagues, just as chapter 7 broke in in the midst of the seven seals. And it opens with that astonishing image. A glorious angel, strong and mighty, descending from heaven, this towering angel stands with one foot on the sea and with one foot on the land, proclaiming authority over all things. Now, some have speculated that this angel might be Christ himself, robed in cloud like the Son of Man from Daniel 7. A rainbow over his head recalls Revelation 4. The angel's legs are pillars or columns of fire reminding the reader of Exodus, where God led the people with pillars of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. The angel's great shout resonates with Jeremiah 25, Amos 1, Hosea 1, 11, sorry, 1, Hosea 11, where the Lord roars like a lion. It also echoes passages like Psalm 29, which speaks of the voice of God's authority. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The glory of the Lord is present in this angel. Yet as important as this angel is, he is not identified directly with Christ, but as one who points towards Christ. Standing with one foot on sea and one foot on land, he raises his right hand to heaven and swears by him who lives forever 
the one who created all things in land and in sea. This cascade of characteristics with this angel grounds him in God's self-revelation throughout history, from the beginning of creation to the exodus until the end. And so it carries us along as well. It carries us into the midst of God's story shaped throughout the Old Testament. Exodus, Ezekiel, Daniel, the Psalms. And it does this as it tells us that the story is coming to its fulfillment. The angel proclaims there will be no more delay. The end has come. And yet in this glorious unveiling, there remains a hiddenness to God. The seven thunders are sealed up. Now perhaps that's to protect us from their consequences, but perhaps it's also to hide their meaning from us. We actually don't know. But we do know that God chooses what to reveal of himself to us. And when the angel acknowledges the authority of God, we hear God's voice. But God remains hidden. The ethereal language of Revelation lends itself to speculation, doesn't it? We want to figure this out, to discover the hidden secrets. We'd like to figure God out, get a handle on what God is about. And that is particularly true when we are in the face of hardship or suffering or pain. It is too easy to believe that comprehension brings confidence. But there's no interpretive key which allows us to make predictions of what is to come or to explain why things happen the way that they do. This is not a crystal ball that we can gaze into. This is a hymn of praise to a great and terrible God who created all and rules over all that is, the God who will complete what he has begun. In a school of theology, one of the great dangers is that we can begin to put our confidence in our own understanding and figuring things out and being able to explain to others what is happening and why and becoming the experts on God. Who doesn't like to be treated with respect in the marketplace, or at least in the church? What is not to like about respect? And here, as the seven thunders are silenced, that illusion, that pride, that tendency perhaps to pomposity is taken away. Instead, this inbreaking of God is a knife that cuts through our pretense, cuts through our pretensions, and it shatters the illusion that we are somehow in control, masters of our fate, captains of our future, or perhaps the ones with insider information. Revelation does not provide us with a secret code book which allows us to unpack or predict the future. And we're not here to gain knowledge about God. We're not here to figure God out. We are here to have our eyes and our hearts opened to the truth of God, not so that we might grasp God, but that God might grasp us.
chapter 10, anticipates the seventh trumpet sounding in chapter 11, and the declaration that the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah has arrived. And with the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God, we are to fall down and worship God. We're here to learn how to worship God. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because worship and worship alone is true knowledge of God. In the opening scene of chapter 10, as the magnificent angel is described, we're told that he holds in his hands a little scroll. But it isn't until verse 8 that we return to this little scroll, and it becomes clear that this angel, in all of his magnificence, is a messenger, a messenger, bringing this little scroll to John, who is told to take the scroll from the hand of the angel to take and eat. Echoing Ezekiel's experience, John is told that the scroll will be sweet to the taste. It will be sweet to the taste, but bitter to the stomach, hard to take in, hard to digest. It is a word from God. It is the word of God. So it cannot help but be sweet. But to humanity in rebellion against God, it is also bitter. So when John obeys, when he takes and <laughs> eats the scroll, it is as sweet as honey. But his stomach is in turmoil. John is told to share what he has just consumed. Where Ezekiel was told to prophesy to the people of Israel, John must prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. In the face of human suffering and pain and questions of the judgment of God, our hope does not rest in figuring God out or being able to explain why. It rests on knowing loving and worshiping the one who was and is and is to come. Our confidence comes in knowing that from the beginning of the Bible to the end, we have a story that points to a God who is faithful, a God whose purposes have not and will not change, a God who chooses how he will show himself to us, and a God who gives of himself to redeem us. Take and eat. We receive, we consume the word of God, we consume Christ. It is this apocalyptic word which breaks into our lives, into our world, to liberate us to worship God, to know God. It silences our speculation, it draws us in, it gathers us up into the story of God's confrontation of human sinfulness, of our sinfulness, not to condemn, but to redeem. And so we consume Christ. But not just for ourselves, but so that with John, we may speak Christ to the world. Our message to the world, our bearing witness to the world is not about what we know but about who we are coming to know.
with John, our witness first and foremost is in worship. That we with the 24 elders in Revelation 11 might fall on our faces and worship God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.